so this year in the evening gathering, um, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Mount only uh, for the entire academic year, all the way through uh, various parts of it. There's a few kind of pullouts around Christmas where we might look at the Christmas message a little bit. Maybe Easter, we'll talk about the cross a little bit. It'd probably be a good idea. But for the rest of the year, we're going to do uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so you're here on the second night of that. Uh, and the main reason we want to do that is we want to fix our eyes on Jesus and do what he says. Uh, as simple as that. Um, so, and I believe that's, um, that's for people that already follow him. And it's for those who, um, in the scripture, it talks about being the crowds. Those who are kind of on the edge, who are intrigued by this person of Jesus. But as we look through the Sermon on the Mount... Um, we, we hear the words of Jesus and what it means um, to... Hello. <laughs> Just got a photo taken. There we go. Um, I'm not used to that. Not that famous. Um, but, uh, yeah, so um, the words of Jesus and what he says. So that's why we want to look at it. Uh, and we believe, I believe, that religion is unpopular, but Jesus is intriguing. Uh, would you agree? Yes. On the whole, generally, Jesus is the one who's intriguing to people that are not from church at all because of what he says. And what it means when his followers actually do what he says. Um, so there's going to be, um, we're going to hear a lot, but we're also going to be asked to respond a lot. And some of it is absolutely hits you between the eyes, some of the Sermon on the Mount. So enjoy that as we go through. Um, it's Jesus' blueprint on how to do life. It covers ground and many questions uh, on, on our lips, maybe around sex, around mental health, social media even indirectly uh, about commitments. Um, I can probably say a different four things there every week about what it covers, but it covers a lot of things that are probably on the lips of people. Uh, and it's simultaneously invitational. Come and see a different way of living. And at the same time, challenging. If you've heard this and you want to follow Jesus, what does it mean in my life? So I'm quite excited about it personally. Uh, before I get to preaching, but I'm excited for each of us as we engage with that. So, so you up for that this evening? Wonderful. So um, last week we started with what, um, what is called the Beatitudes, uh, which is the first, I think, 12 verses of Matthew 5, uh, which, uh, blessed are, the blessed are, it goes on like that. Um, uh, they reorientate us um, away from current conditions uh, to put our hope in what is coming very soon. Uh, and by that I mean the kingdom of God. This whole thing is talking about the kingdom of God that is coming very soon uh, and how we get to live now as though it's here. It's quite an exciting thing. In Revelation 21, we read this. God will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. Because the promise, the Christian promise, is that God is coming to restore all things one day and we get to play a part now. Um, which is um, quite an amazing thing to think about. God is coming to do this, and he has come in Jesus, and Jesus has shown us who the Father is, perfectly who the Father is. Uh, and this future is coming, and we as followers of Jesus get to begin to live like this now, in the way Jesus talks of. Uh, so tonight we're unpacking a little bit further about what it means to live like that, uh, just with a few simple verses, but very deep verses, as I've realised as I've prepared for this. So shall we pray together, and then we'll, and we'll uh, crack on. So Father, we thank you uh, for your um, extravagant grace poured out to us. Uh, we thank you that you're here. Uh, we thank you that in Jesus uh, we see who you are. <laughs> Where in the Old Testament maybe they saw in part, in Jesus we see who you are. 
Uh, and thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for who you are, for your goodness, for your love, for your mercy, and for your willingness uh, to pour out grace on each of us and welcome us home. So, Holy Spirit, I pray tonight, wherever we're at, you would speak to our hearts and you'd cause a response in us. Would you reveal yourself to us um, as we look at the word together? Amen. Amen. So, um, you may know that Christians make some quite extraordinary claims about Jesus. Um, You probably do know that. Um, uh, We say in what's called the Nicene Creed, here's just a little bit of it, it goes like this. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, do people know this? Probably if you've been in certain churches, if you've not, you may have heard it when you were at school, but it goes like this. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, that could be a sermon in itself, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. There's just a little bit of it. But tonight I want us to really focus on some extraordinary claims that Jesus says about you and me. We say a lot about him and tonight he wants to say something about you. Uh, quite clearly. And here tonight um, are two of those things. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So if you'd like to grab a Bible, uh, they're around, and if you've not got one near you, or switch your Bible on however you like it. There's a few more on the shelf back there. I want us to uh, read this where we are tonight, um, and then then we'll crack on. I want us to read it to each other. Uh, So those around us, let's just read this to one another. So Matthew 5, and it's on page page 969 um, of the Red Bibles. If you've got your own, I have absolutely no idea, uh, because I'm not that prophetic. So Matthew 5, when we're all there, and we're going to read verses 13... To 16. So go for it, read it to one another. This is the word of the Lord. This means to God, there we go. I was waiting to do that bit. So, what this is saying, uh, you've probably already gone into it and thinking, what on earth does this mean? What does this mean for my life? Um, what are all these analogies about? But if you are a follower of Jesus, he says, I make this extraordinary claim about you. Listen and let this inform your sense of being, inform your sense of identity this evening. Let this inform your understanding about who you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's quite a big thing to say. And the Romans had a saying at the time that there was nothing more useful and necessary than sun and salt. That's what they used to say, according to one commentator. I wasn't there at the time. But according to one commentator, that is what they used to say. So in turn, Jesus is saying there is nothing in the world more useful or more necessary than followers of Jesus living for him and bringing the kingdom of God into every circumstance. There's nothing more necessary, nothing more useful than you if you were a follower of Jesus this evening. Why? Well, Jesus calls us salt and light Um, When he does that, he's communicating not just something about us, but also something about the nature of the world around us. Left to itself, the tendency of the world is to decay, is to spoil. A bit like meat, spoiling when it's not refrigerated. Or left to itself, the world seems to grow a bit darker. I don't know whether you've seen that at times. 
Left to itself, the world decays like meat left outside. Left to itself, the world grows darker and I would say more confused about who they are and why they're here. I think we lose clarity about what is good and what is bad. Paul sums this up in Ephesians 2. Um, I'll read it to you. Once you were dead because of disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Uncomfortable, isn't it, that one? On a number of levels. Basically, Paul is saying we were absolutely scuppered. We were lost. We had no way back. He talks about in our very nature, just almost going towards darkness, going towards decay. That we didn't deserve grace. And that's entirely the point of grace. Is that it's freely given. It's a gift freely given to us. We didn't deserve it. Here's the second part of that passage. There's hope, don't worry, I'm not going to stop there. But key but at this point. God is so rich in mercy, don't forget that, God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's not only by God's grace that you have been saved, he gave us life. It's, sorry, it's only by God's grace that you've been saved. I was like, what, what did I write that here? For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are, we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united in Christ Jesus. It goes on. God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for it. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Scuppered to saved by grace into a destiny that he planned for us a long time ago. What an amazing turnaround. It's completely light and dark dark and light. And standing in that, saved by grace because of God's love, we can now do the good things he has planned for us in advance to do. What God now calls us to be in the world seems to gra- in a world that seems to gravitate towards decay and darkness is to be salt and light. So let's look at salt for a moment. And I've brought a um, bit of salt with me this evening. literally our salt pot from our kitchen here it is it's probably not very good salt but there we are but salt's a number of things isn't it it's a preservative 
Whenever the world had not had refrigeration, people used to use salt and keep meat wholesome and prevent it from spoiling by rubbing it with salt. A little bit of salt rubbed into meat can have an amazing impact in preserving it. I can remember one time when I lived in Bristol, um, I did the kind of normal check, slightly paranoid check around my flat that I'd turned every plug off because we were going away for the Christmas period and I literally turned every plug off in the house. Um, uh, and then I think we were away for about two weeks and we got back and I was like, this is, smells slightly odd in here. Um, just before Christmas, we'd filled our freezer with meat. We'd, we'd got one of those like deals uh, and for two weeks there'd been no refrigeration and it had just started to go slightly greeny, yellow, gone. Um, so Em um, was very gracious about it because she knew it was me and she was like, I'm going to go and watch TV. You can sort that out. <laughs> and there we are. But I can remember the smell as I was just kind of getting this sloppy ah, stuff. No refrigeration. But in the ancient world, rubbing salt into it preserved it when there was no refrigeration. But we too act as a preservative um, in a world leaning towards decay. We come as salt into places and bring life, I think sometimes in ways we don't know. Uh, and that may sound rather big picture to say, um, but imagine the analogy for a moment. The mass of salt doesn't have to be as weighty as the mass of the meat, does it? Look how small salt is. Imagine it on a bit of meat. I'm probably not going to put all of that on the meat. It'd be a very salty bit of meat. It'd be a lot of salt. But a little salt will preserve a much larger piece of meat from decaying. And Jesus is giving us all a word of encouragement here, a very practical word of encouragement. He's saying you do not have to be bigger than the opposition. You do not have to be bigger than what you see as decay to stop it. He's literally used the analogy of salt, how small it is. You are the salt of the earth. You don't have to be bigger and overwhelmed by the things that you see around you. It's literally just be salt. I quite like that. You simply have to be someone who is salt, who lives their life for Jesus, somehow different to the world around you because you're living as though the kingdom is here, living in the future already of a kingdom that's coming. Don't focus on the size of the opposition around you. Focus on your identity. You are the salt of the earth. Focus on call. Second thing is it's a purifier. It's an antiseptic. Um, I'm not the most qualified to talk about this. There's probably several doctors in here. But we are also purifiers, therefore, if we are the salt of the earth. Modelling what it means to live a life with Jesus and ultimately full of hope, the hope of the kingdom, full of the light of the kingdom. And we're carriers of the gospel of good news of what Jesus has done, that he heals our hearts and he gives us a new way to live now with a very present hope that he's coming to sort things out one day. It's a very real hope that no one is too dirty, too messed up or too far away because Jesus comes in and mends our hearts. Sounds quite simplistic, really. But that's what he does. He mends our hearts. And we extend this by being salt, being purifiers, antiseptic to the world around us. Rubbing salt into a wound isn't the most pleasant thing 
don't know if you've ever done it, when, when you go in the seawater, when you've got a cut somewhere, do you know that feeling? It's not the most comfortable thing. So I think sometimes this means that we can be avoided for being the salt of the earth. We can even be hated for being salt of the earth. Sometimes, on the other hand, we get to bring life to areas of death and decay. But we're called to be the salt of the earth, regardless. And thirdly, the salt is also a seasoning, isn't it? It brings flavour. Through Jesus, we are to be the ones who help others find joy, find hope, find peace in all circumstances, however bitter they may be. Through Jesus, we can be the kind of people who see the amazing good things of the world, the sweet and the spicy, and add the salt of the gospel. And what happens when we add the salt of the gospel is we highlight the work of God in all the good things of the world in a way that it probably wasn't highlighted before. We highlight God's work and truth because we can see God's God's work and his truth all over the place. It's not just Christians that we can see that in. I think sometimes when we spread a sprinkle a bit of salt, it just highlights the source of those good things in a way that it wasn't highlighted before. We get to add life and flavour to the mundane. You know what the effect of spreading salt does? It makes people thirsty. Sorry, that, that was completely... <laughs> I just said that to myself and I grabbed my drink straight away. makes people thirsty to ask the question, how do I get what you've got? How do I have what you have? Have you ever had that before? How how do you have the peace that you have in this situation? I don't understand. How are you still joyful in the midst of that? That's being salty. Salt, I'm told, correct me if you're a a scientist here, is a stable compound. Yeah? Doctor, anyone else? Stable compound, great, good, yes. But it simply doesn't stop being salt. It's just salt. Some salt here. And therefore it doesn't lose its saltiness, because it's a stable compound. Unless it's mixed with other impure elements. compound element, you know, you know, it's that kind of stuff. People that know more about this than me. But it doesn't lose its saltiness unless it's mixed with other impure elements. In the ancient world, salt was not always derived from evaporating seawater to a pure white form, which is salt, but it came from salt marshes containing many impurities. When the salt from um, this salty a thing leached out from the dampiness, it left behind a diluted residue which was regarded as worthless. Apparently, I wasn't there. So the residue was thrown out on the street to be trampled underfoot. And Jesus is commanding, don't lose your saltiness. What, what, What does he mean? That someone who follows Jesus must retain Christ-likeness as salt retains saltiness. Otherwise, we aren't being true to our calling. So here's the bottom line. I believe every time we compromise the words 
and the way Jesus has called us. Living up to the standard of Jesus, we allow our salt to become less salty. Because simply we allow the things that aren't of him in. We allow something not true to our identity. And if this happens, we lose our saltiness and we ultimately lose our influence. And I was thinking about this. I don't think this is something that happens like that. I think we gradually become numb and immune every small compromise to the right or the left that we make until we, we, we kind of forgotten what it means to be salty. Didn't even realise that we were once there and we were now here. I've seen that in my own life. I don't know whether you've seen that in your life. Compromises big and small, big or small. One person says this, the glory of the gospel is when the church is absolutely different to the world, she invariably attracts it. The glory of the gospel is when the church is different to the world around it, it attracts it. It's salt. There's something different going on in its life. When we're the same, I'm not, I'm not sure if we do attract those around us. We retain our saltiness. We become preservatives, purifiers, flavour the world around us, resulting in a hunger for Jesus. As we sprinkle salt with our lives, people will begin to come to life. Then it takes us to the second bit. Light. So, I thought I'd bring something to represent that. Visual learners, here you go. This is light. It's quite hot already. Wow, burnt my fingers straight away. Let me just pop that on there. Salt and light, there you go. Wow, what a picture. What does light do? Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Thank you very much. <laughs> Jesus says, you are the light of the world. What does light do? It does a lot of things. Light reveals. When the light shines, it reveals darkness. It reveals places where there is lack of life and lack of freedom. Have you ever had Jesus shine a light into you and you've been like, oh my goodness, I didn't realise that I wasn't living in the freedom that you've given me in that area. He does it by his grace and by his love to us because he wants us to be truly who we are. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. So here's the question for us, for you. Does your life, does your testimony leave people without excuse not to respond to Jesus because of the light that you shine? Does your life shine light to other people that there's a different way to live and it's called following Jesus? My daughter Lily loves the song Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Uh, we sing it every night before she goes to bed. Got a fan, wonderful. Uh, there we go. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Imagine if those around us were so curious to know the source of our life that they would inquire with those or similar words. How I wonder what the source of your light is. You're shining so brightly. How I, where is that coming from?
The light reveals in us too, of course. But as we're called to be light, it reveals around us where the kingdom, where Jesus reigns, where the things of Jesus need to come in and be made top priority. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, remember that. The second thing it does, it drives darkness away. I can't quite do it in this room to the extent that I wanted to. But it lights darkness away. When you light a match in a dark room, the darkness is driven away. I once heard a story, a testimony of someone who'd been involved in the occult and had since come to know the light of Jesus and began following him. And part of their story was that she knew who the Christians were walking down the street as she was in such darkness at the time that she would literally see them shining. From the place of darkness that she was in, she would literally see people walking down the street shining. I think it was at Spring Harvest years ago that I heard this testimony. It's always stuck with me. As we walk with and for Jesus, we drive the darkness away simply by the life that we live. Before we get on to doing anything else, simply by the life that we live, if we live for Jesus, we drive the darkness away. And sometimes we get to point it out. Sometimes we get to raise a voice and get involved in something wider. But on a personal, on a church level, simply by living for Jesus, we begin to drive the darkness away. And finally, light shows the way forward. We are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden and whose lights are clearly seen from miles around. You don't get that in Cambridge a lot, as an analogy, because there's no hills. But when you're from the Peak District, you're quite used to seeing lights on the top of hills and all the way up the hills where people live. And you can see it from miles around. As people begin to come to life, we show them, we point them to Jesus, we invite them to our communities, we invite them to maybe church, maybe to Alpha, Uh, we offer that word of prayer, that act of kindness, whatever it may be. We We become beacons, if you like, on a hill, pointing people to the kingdom. One person says this, he says this is what we're made for, then says this, a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Rather, we're called to live our lives as our true selves, openly living for Jesus, unashamed of him. And it points to Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. So God uses to shine, hope in, uh, shine the hope of the gospel into darkness, to drive it away and to show the way forward. And you know what we do? We refract the light of Christ. So people see the colours of his beauty. We bring an ambience of Jesus into the dim and the dull to give comfort and peace. So are you hiding? In any part of your life, are you hiding the light of Jesus? Because you are the light of the world. Can you turn to your neighbour and say, you are the light of the world?
You know, when we hide, when we, when we don't shine, it gets put out. We arguably lose a bit of our identity, I think. Because Jesus says you are the light of the world, so if you're not shining, you're not living in your true identity. And I believe at that point we begin to find other things to fill that part of our identity. So let's get on fire again. So Jesus calls his disciples to exert a double influence on society. A negative influence by arresting its decay. Arresting decay. And a positive influence by bringing light into its darkness. This is a a John Stock quote, by the way. For it is one thing to stop the spread of evil, it is another to promote the spread of truth, beauty and goodness. Salt of the earth, light of the world. Where's my Bible? Here. (laughs) Excuse me. No pressure on knowing where to find the verse. It's not in our own power. We don't produce the light. Just want to say that to you now. So if you're thinking, oh, how do I do this? It's not your light. Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you follow Jesus, you have the light of life. And it's his light that he's given to you. If we try... Um, doing it in our own power, we just become busy doing good things with no power. Doing lots of good things, being really nice Christians, but with no power. Thankfully, the one who calls us to be salt and light provides, this is a quote, provides limitless flavour and brilliance. He is an infinitely perfect source. He provides... Uh, limitless flavour and brilliance. He is an infinitely perfect source. And we simply share it and shine to a world that's dying to taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste and see. To a world around us, um, maybe through action, I think uh, I'm I'm emphasising one-on-one personal stuff here, But it's important that this is also a social action thing as well as an evangelism thing. I just want to say that. uh, Engaging with wider organisations, institutions, places, uh, the influence with salt and light is a massive, it's like the left arm of it, if you like. So I'm not belittling that. But what that can do sometimes is to stop us in our daily life because we think we've ticked it by giving money to them or by sending off that petition. Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. So yes to the social action, but daily, every day, are you living as a salt of the earth, the light of the world? I don't know about you, but I've found myself, particularly in the last few years, I think, standing at a distance and commenting on how bad things can get. Um, Or observing something that I may disagree with um, or see a big issue before me um, 
or, or wonder how those around us, you know, the whole of Cambridge will come to know Jesus. And John Stott, who has just got such wisdom on this passage, he says this, When the meat goes bad, we don't blame the meat. We ask, where is the salt? When a room is dark, we don't curse the darkness, we turn on the light. You are the salt, and you are the light. Amen.